This is Romans 15, starting in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of a reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. This morning, the title of my sermon is live on purpose. That's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you, and I'm getting it from this passage, I want to talk to you about what it looks like to live your life on purpose. I want to talk about the difference between living on purpose versus maybe what some of us would say we're doing, which is sort of living on accident. You know what I mean by that? Just kind of living on accident. But see, my call this morning is that we would become a people who live on purpose. Have you ever pulled off something amazing in your life, but it happened totally on accident? You know, it's like, whoa, that turned out amazing. And I wasn't even planning for it to happen, right? I feel like this happens to me. One of the most amazing things I ever pulled off, which was convincing Kathy Williams to marry me, happened totally on accident, all right? I was a freshman in college at Willamette. I was getting breakfast. I was in the cafeteria. I had a bowl of Lucky Charms, larger than any human being should ever eat. It was power breakfast in those days. And I walked through the cafeteria and I saw this big group of students sitting there and Kathy just happened to be at this table, but that's not why I sat down there. Anyway, I sat down at this table and it was kind of one of those rom-com movie moments where right when I sat down, all the other people left except for Kathy. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. So there we are. And, and now, so she's kind of diagonal. So I sort of scooted down right across from her, you know. And what I need you to know at this point is that Kathy actually tells this story very differently than I tell this story. <laughs> Okay, she tells this story as if I was like really like forward and direct and I asked a lot of really awkward probing questions, but I was just making small talk. So there I am and I, you know, within a couple of questions, I said, so are you dating? You know, because that's what you ask. Like, are you dating anyone? And she, she said, yes, I am. I've been in a relationship for three years. And the next natural question in my mind was, how's that going for you? Okay. 
And, and that was the seed that planted the first bit of doubt. Like that was the beginning of the end of that relationship. But anyway, it was totally on accident, okay? It's totally possible sometimes to pull off amazing things completely by accident, but it's probably not gonna happen with your whole life. It's probably not gonna happen with your life. So can I tell you something this morning, River West? You only get one pass at your life. You get one pass, just one. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. The Apostle Paul, as he reflected on the gospel, he realized this is rearranging all of my priorities. You notice in the passage I read, it's very autobiographical. Paul's talking about his life, his ministry, but what he's what the truth underneath the whole thing is, Paul would say, because the gospel is true, that has rearranged all of the priorities of my life. And now I need to live on purpose. I need to live on purpose. If the gospel is true, what is the purpose of your life? Why are you here? You don't wanna find out the answer to that question at the end. You wanna know what the answer to that question is now so that you can begin to no longer live on accident, but live completely on purpose because you believe the gospel is true. And what I see in this passage, and I'm gonna, these are sort of the organizing principles of the sermon. I see three qualities of a life on purpose. Three qualities, okay? Here they are. It's a life of priestly ministry. It is a life of powerful ministry, and it is a life of pioneering ministry. Now today, I'm gonna to spend most of my time on number two. As I was preparing, and especially yesterday, I realized I'm not gonna be able to cover number three. I'm gonna introduce you to number three, but then next Sunday, the whole sermon will be about point number three. But if you look at those, maybe some of you are thinking, wait a minute, are you saying that in order to live on purpose, I have to go into vocational ministry? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm sa actually, I would, I would suggest that the best thing that could happen in our church is for most of you to not go into vocational ministry, to simply continue doing what you're doing, but do it on purpose. Wherever you work, wherever you go to school, whoever you live next to, keep living there, keep working there, keep going there, but start doing it on mission for the gospel. Priestly, powerful, pioneering. So let's walk through those together this morning and then I'm gonna tell you something at the end really important about Jesus. Here we go. What does it mean to live a life of priestly ministry? Life on purpose is a life of priestly ministry. That word priestly is kind of, kind of an odd word. We don't use it very much. For some of you, based on your tradition, it could trigger different concepts. So try to set all that aside for just a minute. I'm, I'm using the word priestly because Paul used it. Did you notice that? Look at your Bible at verse 16. He described his whole evangelistic ministry as a, something that was priestly for him. 
I'll read it, and then you can sort of see where I'm getting this. Starting 15, he's saying, the whole ministry that I have was given to me as a gift of grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus, verse 16, to the Gentiles, look at this, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is, we don't talk like this. What Paul is doing here is he's saying ministry, evangelistic ministry, and I, he, I think he would say this should be true for all Christians. It's not a duty. It's, it's a joyful act of worship. Paul viewed ministry as his way of offering up to God a sacrifice of all the fruit of his ministry as a way to say, God, thank you for the grace you poured out on me. You see the connection? So when Paul says in verse 16, when he says, he talks about the offering of the Gentiles as an acceptable, sanctified kind of offering to God. We don't talk like that, but basically what Paul's saying here is he's saying he viewed all of the Gentiles who came to Christ because of his ministry, he viewed that as his worship to God. That is astounding, River West. He didn't view it as something he accomplished. He didn't pat himself on the back. Paul didn't say, I have slayed for Jesus. Let me tell you something. Paul would go, Christ has done something abundant and I'm offering up to God as my act of worship. This is not the way we typically think about ministry or even our lives. In the Old Testament, there were two kinds of offerings that priests would give. We don't do one of them anymore, but the second one we do continue to offer. The first was a sin offering. This was where the priest would go into the temple and he would sacrifice something for the atonement of sins. Now that Christ is the lamb who's taken away to the sin of the world, he's the perfect sacrifice. We no longer have to make that offering. But the second offering was called a thanksgiving offering. These were offerings made out of gratitude. And we still do this. And Paul says, one of the ways we do this is by sharing the gospel with people. And as that gospel impacts lives, it becomes a way we come before God and say, thank you, Lord, this is my offering to you of worship. Paul would say, those two lines, witness and worship, we have to blur those. Those are not two different things. Blur my witness, you, your witness in the world, you going out in the world and talking to people about Jesus, that is the way you worship in your life. Have you ever thought about it like that? Paul would be saying, you, you could come back into here on a Sunday morning, look back on your week, think of all the ways that God used you as you represented Christ in the world and offer it up to God as an act of worship. And the joy would increase. Can I promise you? Has your worship staled out a little bit? Is it a little stale for you? This week, if you took some risks and you prayed and shared Christ and you talked about your relationship with Jesus and you, and you did everything you can to spread the glory of Christ, come back next Sunday and see how your worship feels. The joy will just ramp up. A couple years ago, I had coffee with a man who uh, was newer to our church and uh, he wanted to meet with me. He was not a Christian before he started coming to church and um, his family had been praying for him. In fact, a lot of people in the church had been praying for him 
to, to come to Christ. And he started coming to church and he started worshiping in the church. And he came to meet with me to tell me how thankful he was for everything that was happening in his life because of his involvement at the church. And he's thanking me and saying, this has been such a blessing. And I interrupted him and I was like, you, you need to stop talking because you need to know you have been a blessing to us. Your presence, do you know how many people have prayed for you and now you're standing in the sanctuary worshiping Jesus? And what's happening is it's causing everyone's joy and worship to skyrocket. Isn't that great? So imagine it's Easter morning. You have a friend. You've been praying for them. You've taken some risks. You've talked about your relationship with Christ. You invite them to church. Imagine they're standing on Easter morning next to you and they start singing a song to Jesus. Will that be a boring worship service for you? Will you be bored? Answer, please. Will you be bored? <laughs> I hope you won't be bored. I, man, if you're, if you're bored by that story, there's something wrong with you. I hope you're going... Thank you, Jesus, in your heart. You don't want to freak them out because they're new to the church, but you also, I hope your heart's exploding with joy. Witness and worship, witness and worship, witness and worship on never any repeat. And did you notice what Paul says? He just says, this is the way that Christ works. Paul says, what's astounding, look at verse 17. Christ is the one doing all the work. I'm just the vessel. I just show up. And anytime something happens, I would never express pride in what I've done because it's always Christ, always Christ. A life on purpose is a life of priestly ministry. And I wanna call you to it this morning because I think it's what we're supposed to be doing. I'm not saying that we're all called to do exactly what Paul did. Paul was unique in redemptive history. He was called to be an apostle of the gospel. And we are not called to be that, but we are called to be people who love Jesus and let the light of Christ shine out of our lives in our relationships. That's number one. So it's a life of priestly ministry, but also life on purpose is a life of powerful ministry, powerful ministry. Here's what I mean. Listen to this really carefully. Paul expected the Holy Spirit to validate gospel preaching with demonstrations of power. Did you hear that? Paul lived his life, and I think we're supposed to live our lives this way. I'm going to explain that in a minute. He lived his life with an expectation. Imagine your heart, and what is it expecting? In just your daily life, he expected that the Holy Spirit would constantly validate any preaching of the gospel, whether from a pulpit or in a conversation with a coworker, that the Spirit would validate that through supernatural manifestations of power. So it wasn't just, when I say powerful ministry, I don't mean Paul was powerful. When I say powerful ministry, I mean Paul was taking bold steps and then the Holy Spirit was accompanying that and doing amazing things. 
And when I say expected, that word kind of is a little, in English, we use that word in sort of like entitled sense, like I expect this and I expect that. But that's not what's happening. What's happening here is think more of the word expectant. Think of a heart posture like, please, God, I, God, I believe you're gonna do something amazing. That's what I'm talking about. Now, let me show you. Look at your Bible, verse 18. Here's the logic. Notice how in verse 18, what Paul does is he says, here's how Christ brings about the salvation of the Gentiles through Paul. He's gonna say, here's how it actually happens. Here's what Paul would say, what are the means? What are the instruments that Christ uses? You see that? To bring about the obedience of the Gentiles. Paul describes it using three, three phrases. I'm gonna read them to you really slowly so you can see it in, in verse 19. Well, first I'll read verse 18 so you see the connection. Um, he says, I will not speak, venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring about the Gentiles to obedience. And how does the risen Christ bring about the obedience of Gentiles? Three things. Number one, by word and deed. Number two, by the power of signs and wonders. And number three, by the power of the Spirit of God. And when you look at that, what I want you to notice is that those three phrases get more specific. They build on each other. Paul says, in my life, and I would, I would argue in the life of the average Christian, the way that Christ wants to work through you is through word and deed. So Paul was speaking gospel truth and he was doing things, doing deeds. Well, what kind of deeds? Well, that's the next phrase, the power of signs and wonders. So this is specifically talking about miraculous things. Paul was accomplishing miraculous things. We'll talk about it because everyone's already thinking, wait a minute, does that still happen today? Well, I'm going to get there, but just look at this text. Word and deed, what is the deed part? Paul says, by the power of signs and wonders. Well, who's accomplishing that? Look at the next phrase, by the power of the Spirit of God. And it just, it flows. And what I need to do this morning is I need to, I need to do two things. I need, first, I need to just show you what this looked like in Paul's ministry. And then the second thing is we need to answer the question, does this still happen today? Should we have the same kinds of expectations today? And the, and the way to answer both those questions is to, is to temporarily leave Romans, which I typically don't like to do because we're in this, studying this amazing passage, but we need to go to Acts. And so please grab your Bible and you can keep your finger in Romans 15, but turn to Acts 14. I'm gonna show you two places in Acts, okay? By the way, uh, this morning, I did not hand out Bibles, and some of you thought the apocalypse was upon us. It's like, what's next, coffee? But no, so here, can, I, can I actually just tell you real quick, if you are worshiping here regularly, can I ask you to bring your Bible every Sunday? We should be a, a Bible people, amen? So bring your Bible, because I want you seeing stuff in your Bible. Um, but next Sunday, if you don't own a Bible, I'll give you one, I promise you, okay? Here it is, the first kind of passage I wanna show you, Acts 14. This is Paul and Barnabas. They are in uh, modern day Turkey, but in this passage, it's, it's, a, it's an area called Iconium, which is Galatia. And they're preaching the gospel. And here's what happened. Now, 
at Iconium. Now remember, our goal here is to show how, how, was, how was signs and wonders working to validate gospel preaching? What's the relationship? At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So the gospel meets resistance, okay? There's, suddenly there's opposition. And by the way, you see that word poisoned in your Bible? You just look at that. I want you to underline that word. I'm gonna come back to that in a few moments, but just really quickly, think about how poison works. And think about how poison could work when it comes to spiritual ideas. The best kinds of poison are those where you don't even realize that you're taking it in. You can't even tell it's coming in, but it's slowly making you really sick or eventually killing you. And this is the way our spiritual enemy works in the world to turn people's hearts off to the truth of the gospel. Poison. That's gonna, that's gonna be important in a few minutes. But here they are, they, they're preaching and initially there's this powerful response. Then what happens? Resistance. Now, what would we do? Suddenly everyone's turned, maybe we would be tempted to turn and go, move on, move on to the next village. Not Paul, look at verse three. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who, this is the Lord, bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders, exact same phrase. That's like a stock phrase throughout the Bible. Granting signs and wonders to be done by whose hands? By their hands. Signs and wonders granted to be done by, the, by God to bear witness to the power of the gospel. But who's being granted the ability to do the signs and wonders? The people sharing the gospel. This is the relationship. This is the relationship. Notice the order. The word is the priority. The word comes first. They're, they're already boldly speaking the word. They've been boldly speaking the word. They meet resistance. People's minds are poisoned. People are darkened. They're, they're, they have a hard heart. What does God do? God validates the message of the gospel by doing something miraculous. And that order is critical. Paul and Barnabas are speaking and then the spirit does signs and wonders. Back in Romans 15, the order was word and then deed. There's a reason for that. It goes in that order. Faith comes from hearing the word. It comes from hearing the gospel. Deeds, even miracles. Now this, listen to this. Good deeds that we do and even miraculous things that happen do not have the ability to preach the content of the gospel. No one ever comes to faith because you do good deeds. You can be as nice to your neighbor. You can be nice to your neighbor for the rest of your life. 
But if you never open your mouth and tell them that they need to consider Christ crucified for their sins, they're never gonna be saved. And, and a person could perform as many miracles as they want. Miracles never save anyone. The miracles serve to, to validate the person who's already boldly talking to their neighbors about Jesus. This is amazing. But those deeds, those, those signs and wonders, they can have a powerful impact. I can't help but um, tell you this illustration about my friend Simon. He goes to our church um, and his conversion is just such a great story. I've told this story before, but a lot of you are new. But so um, Simon asked my daughter to the senior prom, okay? So our relationship started out with suspicion, okay? But now I love him. He's like a brother in Christ. But they, they went to the senior prom together and then, and then they became friends. And, and she, my daughter invited Simon to come to youth group and Simon came to the church and started hanging out with the youth group. And one of the things that happened was that the, the, the way that the spirit was working in the relationships in the youth group functioned like a, a sign and a wonder for Simon. He was watching these relationships and going, what is happening here? This, I've never seen community, I've never seen people treat one another like this. There's joy and there's genuine love for one another. By the way, that is a miracle. Community, beautiful community in a high school group. Hello, God is on the throne, amen? Okay, but anyway, and Simon's watching this. So what happens? Simon signs up to go to Malibu. We're having signs from Malibu. And at Malibu, he hears the gospel. Why? He hears the gospel. His heart has been awakened by signs and wonders. And he commits his life to Jesus. He got baptized that very fall. And he's actually right here in our sanctuary right now. And how amazing is that? That's how God does it. That's how God works. But someone's gotta open their mouth and preach the gospel. Thank you. Okay, real quick, go to Acts 16. Turn two pages over. Let me show you one more little passage here. I think this will help you. Acts 16, this is now Paul and Silas and um, Paul, this is the story where Paul and Silas meet a young woman who's possessed by a demon and she's disrupting their ministry. They're trying to preach the gospel and this woman is following them around shouting. Acts 16, look at verse 16. This is Paul talking, as, or Luke talking, he was with them. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So she's a slave to somebody who's using the fact that she's demon possessed to make money off of her. Terrible. She's able to tell the future or fortune tell and someone's, it's racketeering. They're making profit on it. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul having become greatly annoyed. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. I <laughs> quote that regularly when I'm annoyed. I'm just being biblical, okay? I'm annoyed, it's biblical, okay? Paul has become greatly annoyed. He turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That's a sign and a wonder. And it came out of her that very hour. That's a miracle. Now, here's my question, and I want you to be totally honest. Do you 
think or do you believe that you have the authority to do something like that? If you ever encountered a situation where someone was very obviously under the influence of dark spiritual forces, do you believe that you have the spiritual authority to say, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of him? Because according to the New Testament, you do. You absolutely do. And it happened in that very moment. Now, what happens next in this story is the, the guy who, who was using this slave girl to make money, he, his whole you know, income stream has now been disrupted. He's angry. He conjures up a way to get Paul and Silas, uh, Paul and, yeah, Silas, thrown in prison. They, they beat them with rods, so, which is much more violent than you might imagine. Their backs are probably bleeding. And here they are, and you know the story. They're in this prison. Look at verse 25 in your Bible if you have it. What are they doing? They're complaining. God, where were you this morning? No, they're I love these guys. They're like, praise God. They're praising God. They're singing hymns. And notice, people are hearing them. Isn't that amazing? They're praising God with bleeding backs, singing hymns, and there are people nearby hearing the message of the gospel. And then what happens, you can read this later, you know the story, an earthquake happens, it damages the building, all the chains are broken, their chains on their wrists fall off, all the prisoners are free. The guard of the prison, who's been, he's been put there to establish or keep, make sure the prisoners don't break out. He wakes up, he assumes all the prisoners are gone, so he's realizing I'm in trouble. He pulls out a sword to kill himself. And Paul says from inside the prison, don't kill yourself. We're all just hanging out in here, just chilling. We're just chilling in here, okay? So the prisoner, the, the guard says, turn on the lights. Now look at verse 30. And I, I have a point to this, I promise you. Look at verse 30. Then he brought them out. This is the, this is the guard, the, the guard over the prison. He brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Okay, so let me ask you a question. This guy sees the most amazing sign in one, an earthquake, chains broken. He doesn't know yet how to be saved by that. That sign, that wonder, does not communicate the content of the gospel. The only thing it does is it opens him up to the possibility, maybe I have been ignoring the God of the universe. I'm gonna put up a slide. They're called signs and wonders for a reason. Do we have this slide? They're called signs because they signify something else. Uh, on Wednesday, I was with all the pastors and Derek had this great analogy. He was like, imagine if you were on your way to the Grand Canyon and when you were on your way there, there was a, there was a sign that said Grand Canyon this way and there were a bunch of people standing at the sign going, this is amazing. It's like, you've missed the point completely. That's, that's, that's exactly it. Signs and wonders, the miraculous. Here's the, here's the problem. We're tempted to worship those. That's not the point. We're not, in, we're not meant to get addicted to signs and wonders. We're meant to be pointed 
to the actual beauty, which is the message of the gospel. Amen? And they're wonders, which means they evoke wonder. They, they evoke amazement in the hearer. So he says, what must I do to be saved? Now look at verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And then he gets baptized and his whole house gets baptized. This is amazing. This is the pattern. People boldly speaking the word of truth, boldly talking about Jesus, God periodically, sometimes in amazing ways, sometimes in ways that you can't even notice, validating that truth with miraculous things. Here's my question, because I know you're asking it. Should we expect that today? Like, should we have, should we expect, should we pray like that? And some, I've even heard some Christians say, why don't we see miracles anymore like that? The first thing I want to say to that is, I actually think miracles are happening all the time. We're just not always able to perceive them. Amen? And here's the other thing that I have to say. Maybe one of the reasons, I'll, I'll say this personally, maybe one of the reasons I don't see the Spirit of God doing the miraculous is because I'm not boldly preaching the gospel to people. I'm ashamed of the gospel. And so I don't talk about it to my friends or my neighbors. I'll be honest with you, today, this week, this sermon was for me first. I needed to preach this sermon to my own heart, okay? Because I missed so many opportunities. But I have a feeling that if we, were, if we were less ashamed of the gospel and we were expectant and we were praying, we might see God doing amazing things in people's lives. Amen? Amen? So the, here's the question, and this is a big debate. Have the, have the miraculous, have the sign gifts, have signs and wonders ceased? Is there a cessation to those things? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Many of you know this is a big conversation that happens in the church. Here is my answer. Should we expect God to do signs and wonders? My answer is yes, but, yes, but I don't believe we should expect the exact same frequency or the exact same kinds of miracles, let's say that we saw in the life of Jesus. So there were kinds of miracles that Jesus did that were unique. They, if you look throughout the entire, um, throughout the entire Bible storyline, there are these moments where there are cluster events, where lots of miracles happen. It happened in the life of Christ. And then in the, and in the time of the apostles, and if you go all the way back to the Exodus, there were cluster events, lots of miracles. So it's common for there to be seasons where there are less miracles. But I don't think that means the miracles go away. It might mean we should be looking for different kinds of miracles. Jesus did stuff miraculously that we should not expect. Changing water into wine might be an amazing party trick, okay? But it, but it doesn't really help the gospel advance. That was a miracle that Jesus did very specifically because it validated, this is like his way of saying, God saved the best wine till last. Here I am, right? Or raising people from the dead. That is a miracle that was specifically designed 
to show people what salvation really means, means being raised from the dead. But we should not be expecting Christians to go around raising people from the dead. So here's, here's the way I'll say it. I think there's two dangers. There's two extremes, okay? On one hand, some Christian traditions expect more of the miraculous than they should. There are some Christian traditions that say a Christian who is sick should get healed every time. And if they don't get healed, it must mean they don't have enough faith. That's a very dangerous, unbiblical teaching, okay? I do not, I do not hold that view. On the other hand, on the other extreme, there are some Christian traditions who, who probably expect far fewer miracles than we do. And I would suggest, very humbly, I would include myself in this, we might be more in that camp, right? Not expecting enough, not expecting God to do great things. As long as we are giving the gospel its primary place, preaching boldly, both right here and in your life, I believe it's completely appropriate for you to be praying on a regular basis. God, would you please do something miraculous to validate this? Please do something in my, in my friend's life. My friend's been poisoned. Have, have, have you ever spent time with an unbeliever and you just realize they are just so closed off? They're so, their heart is just rock hard. They don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Can I ask you a question? What does that person need? They need God to do something powerful, to wake them up, to make, make them realize my naturalism, all my naturalistic explanations are completely false. And they need, it, they need God to do something that causes them to realize, I have been ignoring the God of the universe. And it could happen as you pray for them. So, here's a couple questions. Do you spend time with unbelievers? Do you talk about your relationship with Jesus? And do you specifically pray, God, please, my friend, I love her so much. Would you do something incredible? Not for my sake, for the sake of the gospel. Would you move in her life? What would be some examples? A couple examples of si signs and wonders today we should totally expect. I, the number one thing I would say is beautiful community. Beautiful community is a miracle. Amen? We've been talking about this in our church. Community where people gather from all different traditions and political leanings and ethnic diversity and different ages and and, and there's just this beautiful community that communicates something to people. They notice, all right? Here's another one. A strong sense of the presence of God. We've been experiencing that in our church. Just this, you're, you leave worship and you're like, God was, it was like heavy. God was moving in our church. That's a sign and a wonder. Here's another one. Words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. Have you ever had a situation where you're interacting with someone and you suddenly feel the Spirit say, I want you to share something with that person. I want you to say something to them. This doesn't happen to me very often, okay? So I don't want to make myself sound like I'm really spiritual, okay? I'm just as much of a moron as you are, all right? We're in this together. 
But this happened to me one time, and I want to tell you the story because I think it's going to help you. I was in college, and I was a part of a small group with five other guys. They were all my same age, but it was my senior year. Two of them had moved up to Forest Grove. They were doing ministry at Pacific University. And so we would meet once a week. We would always meet in Newburgh. That's kind of in the middle. And we would meet at the Sherry's on 99. And it's still there, isn't it? And the decor is exactly the same as it was when I was in college. So I'm sitting at this table with my, my, my five brothers in Christ and we're encouraging one another. We're talking about Jesus. And I keep out of my, my, out of my peripheral vision, I keep making, I keep looking at a woman who's sitting in the restaurant alone and she wasn't necessarily presenting in any way, but I, 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 I heard the spirit say, I want you to go over and say something to her. And I was like, no, thank you. No, I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. And actually the Holy Spirit told me exactly what I was supposed to say to her. And I knew if I walk out of the restaurant and I don't do it, it's an act of disobedience. So you know what I did? I procrastinated as long as I could. I was like, please God, I pray she leaves before I can even get over there. No, I just didn't wanna do it. And then finally we, we got done and all the guys walked out and you know what? I'm being totally, I walked out of the restaurant, got in the car and then I said, guys, hold on. I have to go back in and I have to go do something really quick. I'll be right back. I walked in. I sat down at the table and I said, I'm supposed to tell you something. And she looked up. I can't remember if I said this is from the Lord. It, I probably, this was like my worst ministry moment in human history, all right? I was like, I said it and I walked out. I didn't even pray for her, I just left. <laughs> Don't do it this way, okay? And here's what I said to her. And I'm gonna actually, I've never told this story. I'm gonna tell you what the spirit told me to tell her. I said, you are punishing yourself for something that Jesus has already paid for. He died on a cross so that you wouldn't have to punish yourself anymore. God. <laughs> and this week, I remembered that because the Spirit told me on Saturday, I'm supposed to say that to some of you. You are punishing yourself right now for something that Jesus has already paid for. And it's time to let him bear your sin on the cross. So maybe a word of wisdom. Do you have a friend? Do you have a neighbor? Have you ever had a moment where you're like, I'm supposed to say something. Even if you get it wrong, it's okay. Just, just start working that muscle. You know what signs and current day signs and wonders are freeing people from stuff they're in bondage to, praying for people to be healed. The, the New Testament is very clear. We should pray for God to heal people, right? We should pray for that. But 
that will only accompany you if you're already boldly talking about Jesus in your relationships. And this is why we're going to gather for 32 hours of prayer. Folks, you know what we're really going to do? We're just going to pray that God would manifest himself in power in our church as the gospel is preached, as people hear the good news of Jesus. What do we want? We want God to show up in power and change people's hearts. I want that. Do you want that? I hope you do. Sorry. Okay, last one. Number three. This is, I'm just going to introduce this. So, so live on purpose. What does that mean? I want you to live expecting God to show up and do miraculous stuff and then come back Sunday after Sunday and worship him with it. And then finally, life on purpose is a life of pioneering ministry. Paul, his goal in life was to preach Christ in places where he was otherwise unknown. Look at verse 19 and 20, just really quick, really quick. Paul says, verse, this is Romans 15, verse 19. Paul says, all that, the signs, the wonders by the power of God. Why? So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. That was just Paul's way of showing all of his missionary journeys. That's what he had done. From Jerusalem up to its modern day Albania, it's almost Italy. Paul had never gotten to Rome. We'll talk about that next week. There's the map. See that red, that, that whole place, Paul had done missionary journeys. Paul's not saying every single person heard me preach Christ. Paul's ministry strategy was he would go to key cities, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, and he would plant a church, a gospel-centered church, and then that church, the gospel would radiate out from those believers and everyone in the community would have an opportunity to hear about Jesus. Paul says, that's my strategy. By the way, that's why we're here. We're here to be a church gospel-centered where the message radiates out. And then look at verse 20. Then he says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul's saying there are people who've never heard the gospel. I've got to get there. Next week, Paul's going to say, I've got to get to Spain. The gospel's never gone to Spain. And so it's a, a pioneering ministry. This is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that's always asking the question, who, who, who has not heard the gospel yet? Where do we need to go? Does this mean we need to leave the Pacific Northwest? No. No, okay? Most of the people that I meet in Portland have not heard the gospel according to Jesus, right? They've heard the gospel according to CNN or Anderson Cooper or Tucker Carlson or you name it. They've heard some version of the gospel and they're so confused because they, they think that's what Christianity is. And unless you show up into the neighborhood and say, that's not Jesus, let me, let me tell you about Jesus, okay? Now, some of you are being called to go to the mission field. I have no doubt about it. Some of you are being called. Next Sunday, Christopher is gonna tell us about an opportunity to go to Nicaragua. Some of you are being called, but most of you are being called to live on purpose, right where you already are. Amen? Amen. Okay. You're like, dude, stop preaching. Jeez, enough already. 
Let's pray. Please bow your heads with me. And then we're going to go to the table. Heavenly Father, we want to not be hearers of the word today only. We want to be doers of the word. We want to be people who begin to live on purpose. And I have a feeling everyone in the room right now already knows something they're supposed to do. A coffee date you've been meaning to set up for a long time. A walk across the street to start a friendship with the neighbor. An invitation to lunch of that one coworker that nobody likes, who's always alone. Finally mustering up the courage to tell a family member that you're following Jesus. Would you please give us boldness? And then God, would you please, would you validate that with signs and wonders in our church? Right now as we worship, would you come Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit? May we sense your presence with us. Would you cause the fame of Jesus to spread? in and through our church, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.